It's, it's been said that a calm sea will not produce a skilled sailor. And that you can't discover new oceans without the courage to lose sight of the shore. And there's, there's truth in those little sayings. The best opportunities in this life do carry with them some risk. And our faith is that way too. The Bible says in lots of different ways, dozens of places that as Christians, we are to live not by sight, but we're to live by, by faith. And living by faith will always carry with it some inherent risk. Now, this faith of ours has no ultimate risk. Do you know that? Like in the end, we have confident, guaranteed, sure hope. But until we fully realize our hope one day, living by faith always carries some risk. Might If we live for the, the glory of Jesus, to see him glorified, to do what pleases him. Might we stand to suffer some loss, lose some things? What might people say? Might we feel ostracized, be left out? Over the last 20 centuries, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, their questions of risk went like this, like, might I be kicked out of my family, my village? Might I be imprisoned or even executed? Sure, all of those things have happened and continue to happen. But part of living by faith is having the assurance that doing that which is faithful will always ultimately be best, no matter what it costs us temporarily. Faith demands risk. The great missionary Hudson Taylor once wrote, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Sometimes we would love to do things for the Lord. We would just prefer they're not risky. That I, I won't lose anything. That they're safe. But like John Piper wrote, this is from uh, Don't Waste Your Life. He said, it is the will of God that we be uncertain about how life on this earth will turn out for us. And therefore... It is the will of the Lord that we take risks for the cause of God. And later he writes, Every loss we risk in order to make much of Christ, God promises to restore a thousandfold with his all-satisfying fellowship. Risk is part of faith. Well, this morning in the book of 2 Samuel, King David is going to take a risk. 
Where we are going to pick up this morning, we are halfway through what's really one story. Last week, we covered the first half of that story, and if you weren't here, that's okay. You'll pick up just fine. But last week, David decided he wanted to go get a piece of furniture, a very special piece of furniture, a chest called the Ark of the Covenant. And he wanted to to bring that ark to Jerusalem, his new capital. It's also called the city of David. And the reason he wants to do that, that the ark of the covenant symbolized for Israel the very presence of God. And David, from a human perspective, seemed to have everything. He was rich, he was powerful, he was unanimously popular, he had defeated all of his enemies. But David didn't want anyone to think that because he had all that, he had everything. While God's presence was down north in the northern foothills, right, and the presence of God symbolically wasn't with him, it's like he didn't have everything he needed if he didn't have the Lord with him. So he wanted to go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to where he was because he wants everyone in Jerusalem to know, the Lord has put me where I'm at, and if I don't have him, I, none of the rest of this stuff matters. So last week in the first half of this story, David decided to go get the ark. Well, a scary thing happened on the way into town because God struck a guy dead. Here's the story, briefly. God had given some very specific instructions on how the ark of the covenant was to be housed and moved It was only to be carried on poles by one family of people, and it was supposed to be covered. And and King David didn't order any of those rules to be followed. They just put the ark up on an ox cart. The oxen stumbled, or they hit a pothole, or who knows what happened. But the 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 ark kind of, excuse me, the 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 cart kind of tipped. The ark threatened to fall off, and a guy named Uzzah did what maybe anyone would have done. He just reached out and took hold of that ark to keep it from falling down in the dirt. And God struck him dead on the spot. Now, if you really want to know why a good God would do such a harsh thing, you're going to have to listen to last week's uh, sermon for that. For this week, where we pick up this morning, David has just decided, he's just reconsidered having the box of death moved into his house, so to speak. He decided, you know, I think maybe I better leave this where it's at. Maybe a safe distance between me and and this God is a more prudent course of action. And so he found a guy named Obed-Edom, and he said, here, you keep it. Imagine how Obed-Edom responded when David, the most powerful guy in the neighborhood, says, that thing is way too scary for me to have. So why don't you take it? And the, the Ark of the Covenant has been at Obed-Edom's house, we'll learn, for about three months. But today, David realizes, you know, my greatest need is still my greatest need. I still want to be with that God. I still need Him, or none of this stuff matters. And so today, David's going to take a risk. He's going to go back and try to get the ark and move it to where he is at in Jerusalem. That's that's where we're headed. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to read verses 11 through 23 this morning. 
Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark, or this is how it happened, the bearers of the ark of the Lord, when they had gone six paces, David sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel went, bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Verse 16. And then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, that's David's first wife, looked out the window and and she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised David in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 18, when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering. He, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all uh, the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each person. And then all the people departed, each to his house. Verse 20. But when David returned to bless his own household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, that's why I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. There's our passage. Now, again, really this is supposed to be read at the same time you read the first half of the passage. For time's sake, we can't always do that. We had to break it up. But I think when we get to verses 11 and 12... We're supposed to be surprised at the contrast. Because it, just a few verses prior to this, when someone got too close to the ark, a guy named Uzzah, what happened to him? Like, God killed him. And so, again, you know, David says, here, you take this. I think the guy was probably like, you talk about being between a rock and a hard place. I don't want the box. I don't really want to tell the most powerful guy in Palestine no either. So he takes the ark into his house and God starts blessing him and everything he's got. We're not told what that looked like, but apparently it was evident. I think we're supposed to scratch our heads and say, wait a second, what gives? Obed-Edom's house isn't the Holy of Holies where the ark is supposed to be parked, is it? 
Why does he get blessed and Uzzah get killed? Well, what gives, I think, is this. God still wants to teach people about himself. That's why Uzzah was killed. More on that last week. But last week, God needed to teach Israel, I want to be with people, but people can't get to me however they decide they want to get to me. People can only get to me the way I allow myself to be got to. And when David was taking the the people down a path that was incorrect, God had to teach that lesson. God's still teaching. Today, while everybody's terrified of God, He starts blessing the person who has the ark to teach people, I still want to bless you with my presence. Do you know this is true about God? God wants to bless you with His presence. You know that? It may not look like making you rich and famous and keeping you healthy and all that stuff, but God does want to bless you with His presence. And David gets that. When David is told, hey man, things are going awful good for Obed-Edom since he's had the ark, David goes, oh yeah, God doesn't want to kill us all. That's not what I was supposed to learn from what happened to Uzzah. He's still my greatest need and my biggest blessing. And so David gets the itch again. He wants to be with the Lord and the Lord to be with him. And so it's like, all right, we're going to try this again. We're going to go back and get the ark. And the rest of this chapter is is about how that happened, what what it looked like. Verse 13 is very important to the story. In In regular Hebrew narrative fashion, we get very few details here, but they're important. The first few words of this verse, those who carried the ark, or your Bible might say the ark bearers. That's just, that lets us know David has learned. He didn't go back and put it on an ox cart again, because that didn't go so good. So David has investigated How did God say this thing is supposed to be transported? Or maybe he's gotten some wise counsel from people who already know. But he's learned. He's having the ark transported the way God said should be done. And then David, uh, he decides to, to sort of consecrate this whole journey. We're told he had those ark bearers take six steps and then stop and they... They had a little church service, we might say. Here's what I think is going on here. The Sabbath was very important to Israel, right? The Sabbath, Israel was supposed to work for six days and do nothing on Saturday. And that was a sign that they were in covenant with God. That's what that was for. It made them distinct, different. I think what David is doing here is he's doing a symbolic Sabbath. We're going to do the work of carrying this ark toward where we want it up in Jerusalem. But we're going to do six steps worth of work and we're going to stop. And then David offered a costly sacrifice or offering. David understands what the whole religious system built around the ark and the tabernacle was meant to teach. God wants to be with people. 
We can only get, because we're sinful, we can only have access to God the way he allows. And that involves being in covenant with God and something dying in my place. Something dying instead of me. And so even though they don't have a temple yet or a tabernacle anymore, David wants to symbolize that as they bring it. The only way we can be with you, God, is through the acceptable sacrifice. Do you see how this trip and this whole religious system points to the cross of Jesus Christ? The whole thing does. How many people, how many people still today think they will be okay with whatever power is out there because of how they have lived their life while they've been alive? Lots and lots of people. But it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ God allows himself to be approached. He is the acceptable sacrifice that we must rest in. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so David's carrying the ark correctly. He has done a symbolic Sabbath. He's offered a costly sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And then how would you characterize, as we read through that passage, how would you characterize the rest of the walk from wherever they were into Jerusalem? Did you, did you hear how many times we read about joy, gladness, celebrating, dancing? It's impossible to miss, right? Again, the second half of this chapter is very, very different from the first half of the chapter. The first half of the chapter was like sudden death and resulting terror. You fast forward just a couple of verses and it's dancing and celebrating. What makes the difference in the way I relate to God. In the way I feel about God, what takes me from terror of sudden death to dancing? Or let me ask it this way, or say it this way. If you were to ask me, Pastor Matt, how should I feel about God? Should I be terrified or should I celebrate what I have in him? You know what I would say? I would say, well, where, at, where are you in relation to the acceptable sacrifice that's been offered? This, this whole religious system we're reading about in the Old Testament points to the one acceptable sacrifice. And where you are at in relation to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that makes the difference and whether you should be terrified of God or you should dance and celebrate. If you are still hoping to just kind of give God the giant stiff arm, not think about him, pretend he's not there, 
or if you are trying to, to be okay with God just based on your, your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds, I would tell you that being terrified is probably where you should be. But if you have trusted and rested in that what God did at the cross was take the only one who had never sinned, who deserved no punishment, put your sin on him and punish him as if he had sinned all of your sins so that now there's no more condemnation for you before God. If you really believe that about Jesus and trust in that, I would tell you, you should be dancing. You should be celebrating your acceptance by God based on what Jesus has done on your behalf. See, the difference in this trip, this trip between last week's trip, the difference in those two is the acceptable sacrifice has been given. And David is approaching God the way he's allowed himself to be approached. Now, as Christians, we can dance and celebrate, but we should never lose our sense of awe at the one we are celebrating. Psalm 2, verse 11 says this. It says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do you hear the contrast in the last half of that verse? Rejoice and trembling don't seem to go together. But that's what we do as Christians. We rejoice that we are accepted by God based on what Christ has done on our behalf. But we don't celebrate because God is no longer scary. God's terrifying. He just doesn't have any more condemnation for us if we're in Christ Jesus. So that's the difference. And that is something worth dancing about. We're celebrating. I have been accepted by God fully and completely because of something I didn't even do that Jesus did on my behalf. That's worth dancing. Now, in this story of dancing and celebrating though, there's one wet blanket in this story. Who's the wet blanket in this story. David's wife, Michael. I want you to notice what Michael, how she is referred to in this passage. I think we should expect her to be called Michael, David's wife. But she's never called that, even though that's what she is. What's she called? She's called Michael, the daughter of Saul. Her dad's been dead for some time. But she's called Michael, the daughter of Saul. You know why? Because she's acting just like her daddy in this passage. King Saul is the one that was constantly hunting David, constantly doubting his motives, constantly wanting, right, trying to kill him. And she's kind of a chip off the old block here. Here's why she is like Saul. First, where was Michael while it's seeming like the rest of all of Israel is out in this procession celebrating their acceptance by God? 
Is Michael out celebrating with everyone else? No. She is inside the residence, sort of looking out the window, hating everyone who is. We're told she looks out, she sees David celebrating before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She hates his guts, is what we would say. Michael is like her dad in that Saul was always the guy who wanted to use whatever Saul had to make much of Saul, right? I think what Michael would like to say to David is, why can't you be like a normal king? You know what normal kings do? They use their power and their influence and their popularity and their wealth to make life awesome for themselves and their court. People like, you know, me, right? Why don't you just make this a super lavish court we can actually enjoy instead of diving into all that religious mumbo jumbo? Ugh, you make me sick. That's my own paraphrase. When she is able to speak with David, in verse 20, she is super sarcastic. She doubts David's motives. She says, oh, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. Oh, way to go out there, Dave. You looked really awesome. You seem to really enjoy dancing around scantily dressed in front of all those common ladies out there. And there is a word, these are, these are commoners, the, the, the daughters of your servants, these lowly women. You sure enjoyed sort of getting half disrobed and dancing around in front of them, didn't you? She doubts his motives. He has an immoral motive. He can't really believe all that junk. David's response, verse 21, he says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. That's why I will celebrate before the Lord. You hear David there? She says, oh, you really enjoyed dancing in front of all those ladies. David says, I was only dancing for one person the Lord. It was only for the Lord that I danced, that I celebrated. I I wasn't concerned about what anyone else was thinking about me. Only him. And unlike your daddy, David says, I remember how I got where I got. God has made me king over Israel. But the reason your dad was rejected is because he forgot who got him where he got him, right? I will never, David says, I'm not going to forget who put me where I am at. That's why I celebrate the Lord, because he has done all of this. It was done by him. It was done for him. So I'm going to celebrate that. Verse 22, I love, when David talks, it's like poetry just pours out of this guy. No wonder he wrote a whole bunch of Psalms. When he says, I will be more lightly esteemed than this, I will be humble in my own eyes. 
Here's what he says to Michael. He says, I've not even begun to humiliate myself. I have not even begun to lower myself in my own eyes and the eyes of everyone else. That's why I'm bringing the ark up here to begin with. I don't want people to see what's happened to me and think, man, I'm awesome. I want people to see what's happened to me and think, wow, God is awesome. So I'm going to constantly be lowering myself. So you better get used to it, hun. And then he says this part here, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. David's not saying, I'm going to make them respect me unlike you. David says, those common, lowly people who are down there celebrating their acceptance by God, when when they see me celebrating the same thing, they will just say, there's a guy that gets it. He could very easily be up there in his ivory castle celebrating himself, but he's down here with us celebrating the God who's blessed him with everything he has. Me humiliating myself, humbling myself before God is what will make them respect me in the way I want. Not me lording my position over them. The chapter ends with a note of Michael's childlessness, that she's barren. Uh, Now it is true that in the Old Testament at times... Fertility was tied to disobedience, but that's not what's going on here, I don't think. Michael is King Saul's daughter. David is the current king. Any child born to those two would have like an ironclad claim on the throne. And God has decided Saul's, Saul's line will end. There's not going to be a king from this line of people who try to collect the things God has blessed them with to make themselves seem awesome. It's not who I want. There's our passage. What do we learn from really from the whole chapter, from the death of Uzzah, the acceptable sacrifice, and then the resulting celebration? Here's some things I think we learned today. First, This chapter does teach us that God is terrifyingly holy and just. Hebrews 10 in the New Testament, like after Jesus, says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is still true. God is not to be trifled with. But... God still wants to bless people with his presence. God is holy and just and righteous and so different from us that it's scary. But he wants to be with people. He wants to be with you. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says it this way, The Lord's not slow to keep his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. Why? Because God wants to be with people. He loves people. Third, God has allowed one way 
for us to be made right with him, to be in relationship with him. And we must approach him that way. First, First Timothy 2, we read this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Again, what that says is, like, it's impossible to just try to take the words of Jesus out of the Bible and say, well, we're just supposed to follow him because the words of the same Bible say there's no other way to be reconciled to God than through the sacrifice of Christ. And so for, for anyone outside of Christ, God remains terrifying. But, Fifth, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if right now you place your faith in Christ Jesus, or you already have, when is the point where God no longer condemns you? Now, already, folks, that is something worth celebrating. That is something worth dancing about. We should celebrate this. And I want to go back through those points and, and just reword them a bit. God is terrifyingly holy and just. It is risky to try to go be in a relationship with God. But God wants to bless people, so that risk is definitely worth it. God did allow a way for us to be made right with him. He took all of the risk on himself. Now, for anyone outside of Christ, God remains terrifying. The risk is still there for them. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The risk has been erased when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that we should celebrate. You know, sometimes I think we spend so much of our time as Christians, as the church, laying guilt on folks. Laying guilt on ourselves. We spend so much time beating ourselves up over how we failed and what we did. And don't hear me wrong. Confession and repentance are important. They are vital. But listen, as a Christian, you have way more to celebrate than you have to beat yourself up over. You have infinitely more to celebrate, to dance about than you have to mope about. And as you convince yourself that because of what you've done, God doesn't like you this week, so you better stay away, you're living in the first half of this passage. Either He took all of the punishment you deserve, or He didn't. Which is it? Because if He did, you can always go climb right back up on Daddy's lap, tell Him what you did wrong, and He accepts you every single time. He wants to be with you. 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we should celebrate that. When we come here, that's what we should be doing. When we stand and sing together, we should be celebrating, not moping. We should be celebrating. We should be dancing. Now, a word about that. We're not going to start literally dancing here. Mainly because of, not because God wouldn't be okay with that. He would be. But because of the damage we would do to the arts if we start dancing. Okay? Right? Um, Whatever it is that we would call dancing, I'm going to ask us to refrain from doing that in deference to actual dancing. Okay? But in all seriousness... We have so many reasons to celebrate Christ. We should be celebrating those reasons when we come here. And I know just culturally who we are, we're a pretty buttoned up set of folks here, and that's okay. A lot of our celebrating is internal, right? Nobody's going to look at us and confuse us for a bunch of Pentecostals running around in here. I get that, and I'm fine with that. But I also want you to know you can celebrate Jesus here. And if someone looks at you disapprovingly, understand that might just be Michael looking out the window. Okay? And the one who disapproves of you celebrating won't be the one you're actually celebrating. You feel me? We have so much to celebrate. Way more to celebrate than we have about, than we have to mope about. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this is a broken world. This is a sinful world. And I am a broken person and a sinful person. God, when we convince ourselves as Christians that you can't possibly like me right now because of what I have done, will you remind us our acceptance of you was never based on anything we have done? but based completely on what you have done on our behalf. The acceptable sacrifice has made and we live in that period of rest in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We know you are holy and righteous and just, but your justice was aimed at our Lord instead of at us. And we live and we walk in the celebration of being accepted by a holy and righteous God. God, we celebrate what you did for us through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Would you stand and finish with us this morning?